1: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter, Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest today is the publisher of The Bulwark, Sarah Longwell. Thank you, one and all. Sarah, great to have you. Thanks for having me. We are careening into another of these almost uniquely American dramas, uh, the Debt Ceiling Breakmanship, where we take the country right up to the edge of default. And in every previous episode, there has been a final last minute perils of Pauline escape from the precipice, but people are not sure that it's going to end that way this time. A number of Republican budget experts, economists, policy wonk types have actually gone public with their worries, including Brian Rydell of Senator Rob Portman's staff and who's associated with the Manhattan Institute, Michael Strain of AEI, Douglas Holtz-Eakin, former director of the CBO. They've all tried to sound the alarm that even getting up to the edge of a default is, I think Strain called it a market event, meaning it would be potentially problematic. Sarah Longwell, what do you see as the political risks here for the various parties. I mean, we can start with Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who did get, to some people's surprise, he did get his members to vote for a package of budget cuts. But the problem is that he now, because of the way he became Speaker, can he go in and negotiate with Biden on anything? Because his members can always vote to vacate the chair. That's true. Although Biden has also said that he won't negotiate on this. You know, the thing
2: about the debt ceiling fight is that it's very inside the beltway. I've gotten a lot of calls from reporters. They're like, hey, what are you hearing in your focus groups about the debt ceiling fight? And I'm like, absolutely nothing. Because the voters aren't engaged in this in terms of blaming somebody right now during the brinksmanship phase. It's when there are consequences, right? So like the political liability for everybody is being the one that people blame if it does go south, and we are actually find ourselves in a default position. And I do think the reason that for the most part, in the 11th hour, people pull this out is because nobody wants to be that person, because there are real consequences there, which is why you've got the sort of like a tough talk rhetoric side, and then you've got the side quietly underneath that is kind of trying to pave a path to finding some kind of a solution ultimately. And I think Biden, even though he's saying he's not gonna negotiate on this, he is meeting with McCarthy about something else. And so people, I think, do believe that they will find a way forward on this because no one wants to be the person blamed for defaulting on America's debt.
1: Linda Chavez, do you think that we are going to, as usual, find a way out at the last minute or not?
3: Well, yes, I think we will
1: eventually find a way out of this.
3: But the question is, does that happen uh Before or after our debt gets downgraded. And what does that do to our economy? And for people over the age of 65 or so, many of whom are living on their savings, on their investments, this is going to have a disastrous effect. And this kind of brinkmanship is extraordinarily dangerous. And what is really surprising to me is that the business community, the folks who know exactly what the economic consequences are, you know, not just the average voter sitting in a focus group or elsewhere, but people who are really steeped in this stuff are not being particularly helpful. And I think that the president thought that you would get groups like the Chamber of Commerce and others to try to talk sense to the Republicans, to try to push the speaker on this issue. And instead... They don't like the size of the debt. They don't like the kind of of out-of-control spending that they see coming from the Biden administration. And so they're not really riding to the rescue. And I think that makes it more difficult. I think negotiations become more difficult. And we don't know how this is going to turn out. We're already seeing its effect, it plus the rise in interest rates that the Fed put into place. It's having not a very good effect on the stock market. And what happens in the stock market does have an effect. It has an effect in a lot of different ancillary ways. And so I think it's very dangerous. And we'll get to an agreement at some point, but damage will be done in the meantime.
1: Damon, our debt is just ballooning. And some people, I know Sarah has talked about this before, and Linda certainly, you know, some people on the right still take it seriously that the debt presents a really, really serious governance problem for this country and that this is not the way grown-ups should conduct themselves. And yet, this country is full of business people and families and lower-level government officials who are perfectly capable of making grown-up decisions about not spending beyond their means. At the federal level, it is all about messaging, it's the other guy. So the Democrats can point, and with some truth, I mean, they point to the fact that under Trump, They added something like $7 trillion to the debt. They raised the debt ceiling without a peep. And then the Republicans can reply, but look at what Biden is doing. He's doing the student loan forgiveness thing. And he's spending all of this money on climate initiatives and other things. And we can't afford it. But nobody ever says, right, so this means we have to compromise. That's the dirty word. Yeah, I'm one of those rare Democrats who actually does care about debt
4: and deficits being unsustainably large. But I think we can all agree, even those on that side of the debate, that the way to handle this is not through this kind of brinksmanship that we put ourselves through. It's really an irresponsible way to do it. I see it itself as an expression of the very same problem. If you want to actually address the problem of structural systemic deficits that lead to very large debt burdens on the country, you do it in the budget process. You actually get together and negotiate between the parties about what the priorities are and what is acceptable for cuts in spending and tax hikes for each side, and you reach a deal. That's how they did it in the mid-90s when Bill Clinton was president, and he was able to work together, even with his arch-nemesis, Newt Gingrich, to actually balance the budget and run a, a surplus for about a blink of an eye. At the time, I was very pleased about this and kind of got a bit of a kick out of it, the fact that the Democrats were in the White House when they
1: accomplished this feat. But By the way, the economy loved it too. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was a great
4: thing. Definitely nostalgic for the 90s in all kinds of ways. Me too. The movies. Yes. (laughs) That's one of them. Yes. The politics. Everything. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Bill having a job in the... West wing. So <laughs> that's how you actually address the problem. You do not do it by having a debt limit that is kind of set arbitrarily. And if you hit it, then the whole country defaults on its debt and we tank the U.S. economy for a generation and the world economy as a result of a collapse in our economy and the value of the dollar. It's just disastrous. And we always do pull the steering wheel away from the direct head-on collision in the game of chicken at the last minute. I do assume that we will do that this time, too. But Nothing good comes out of it. Oh, kick it down the road till like September and then we'll have to do this whole thing again. Or you just kind of patch together some kind of a deal that gets us through another year or two, and then we have another debt ceiling standoff, unless, of course, Congress and the White House are held by the same party, and then nobody cares. It's really theatrics, and you know, it's the kind of thing that makes ordinary Americans roll their eyes and say, those people in Washington are clowns, they're not serious. And I really wish we would get past this and actually address our problems rather
1: than have the displays of nonsense. So Bill Galston, there was talk during the lame duck session when the Democrats still had majorities in both chambers, raising the debt limit preemptively so that we wouldn't be where we are now. That unfortunately didn't happen. So now we are looking at a variety of possible things that the president could do unilaterally, If we were facing default, if they can't come to a compromise, one is this idea that's kicked around for a few years, minting a $1 trillion coin and then depositing it with the Federal Reserve. That's kind of iffy and weird. But here's one that is interesting, and I'd be curious to hear your views on it, which is there is an argument that the actual debt limit law itself, under which we're all operating, but the actual law is unconstitutional, they say, because in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, it says, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned, unquote. And so people are suggesting that Biden simply continue to pay the government's bills despite having breached this artificial debt ceiling, and say that when challenged, that that law was unconstitutional and let the courts sort it out. Well, it's funny you should mention that,
5: Mona, because I had pretty much decided that I was going to spend the weekend reading a bunch of law review articles, <laughs> pro and con, on exactly that question. And I plan to do that because I regard that as the least implausible argument <laughs> that the president could employ if he's forced to take executive action. Like everybody else, I hope he won't be forced to take executive action. But unlike other parties to this conversation, I am not confident that the past is prologue. And neither are the Republican economists that you began this segment by citing. I think there are reasons to believe that this addition of a House Republican majority will be even less tractable on the question of the debt ceiling than its predecessors were. I am not convinced that they will blink or that the president will blink. And one reason I am skeptical or at the very least worried is that the survey research available to me suggests that Americans in general and Republicans and conservatives in particular really don't regard the possibility of default as serious. And what do I mean by the possibility of default? Well, let me read you the exact YouGov survey question and answer that I'm referring to. And Here's the way it goes. If the debt ceiling is not raised and the U.S. defaults on its debts... Would you consider that in increasing order of urgency not a problem, a minor problem, a major problem, but not a crisis, or a crisis? We are talking now about actual default and not the possibility of actual default. Only 32% of Americans say that they would regard an actual default as a crisis. And this is enabling, I think, people on both sides to proceed down the road, assuming that the other side is going to swerve at the last minute in the famous game of chicken. And I'm not at all sure that it's going to work out that way this time. To put it simply, if it comes down to the last day or the last hour, and neither side has blinked, I think that President Biden is more likely to invoke the 14th Amendment as constitutional justification for continuing to issue debt and pay the nation's bills as already incurred, than he is to capitulate to Republican demands.
1: Sarah, I'm going to ask you something that is not going to sit well with some listeners. But look, the Republican Party has become a populist party over the last number of years. And the Democratic Party has always had a little bit of populism, too, like, you know, the Bernie Sanders wing. But here's where you run into problems in a country that is too populist. (laughs) Because, you know, you cite the YouGov poll, and gee, only 32% of the people think that this is a problem. Well, the people don't know. The people are not educated about this. They don't understand what it is they're opining about. And sometimes the role of elected officials is not just to respond to the public, but to lead the public and to inform the public and to do what is best for the country, even sometimes in the face of what their voters think they want, because they're more informed about what the consequences would be. What's your reaction to that?
2: My reaction is total agreement. Look, I listen to voters, and I think that there's a lot of places where this is a democracy. Voters get a choice over their elected officials, but there are absolutely things that they, not only do they not understand, they don't really care in a way where, like, they do outsource this stuff to elected officials. They even said something when he was talking about how the voters kind of regard everybody as clowns. And Mm -hmm. it's true. They do. They look at them, they're like, oh, they're so stupid. They don't really know what they're fighting over. With the debt limit. You know, I remember being in a focus group one time and asking a woman who said that she was really concerned about the debt. And I said, okay, well, how do you think Donald Trump is doing when it comes to the debt? She said, oh, I think he's really chipping away at it. (laughs) And of course, Donald Trump was spending like crazy and had cut taxes that was adding to the debt. And so this is a thing where they've got the most basic opinion of either I don't think we should be spending so much, and conservatives and Republicans will say that. But in terms of having any kind of granular knowledge, or even a sufficient knowledge of the consequences, until the government is shut down or something else that they actually feel and impacts their lives, they don't engage on this. And so, this is where our elected officials have to act like grownups. And one of the things that sort of makes me crazy about the brinksmanship—it is meant to show the other side as being irresponsible put the other side in the position of being sort of the irresponsible party that gets the blame. But the voters are not paying enough attention to know that they just want this solved. And so sort of that is the responsibility of our elected officials right now is just to solve it. That's what people sort of expect as a baseline from
1: the government. All right. We will continue to watch that. I don't think we have a choice, but now we're going to turn to our next topic, which is the contours of the 2024 campaign. It is looking, Sarah, I'm going to stick with you on this. It is looking like we are going to have a rematch of Biden v. Trump. So we now have seen DeSantis sink, and we've seen Trump rise, and we've seen Biden's announcement, which we talked about last week. But I want to ask you one thing in particular, because last week there was a daily podcast, New York Times podcast, where they were analyzing the Biden campaign's view of how the race is going to shake out. And they were talking about, of course, the battleground states, you know, the polling of national polling doesn't matter. Everything comes down to battleground states. Okay, we all knew that. But they said one thing, they said that the three states that they're concerned about are Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia. They said President Biden has to only win one of those And the Republicans need to sweep all three in order to win the Electoral College. What do you make of that?
2: Well, they're assuming he wins Pennsylvania then. Like they're assuming that Biden is winning states that I'm not sure people should take for granted. Mm -hmm. So on this piece in particular, which is basically Biden's electability if he faces Trump again, obviously, I think that Biden uh, stands a decent chance against Trump, specifically because of what we just saw happen in 2022. Yes, Joe Biden had low approval ratings. I was talking to swing voters the whole time through 2022. And even though they were frustrated with Biden, they were down on Democrats, they were saying specifically they'd like to vote for a Republican they didn't want to vote for any of the Republicans on offer. They didn't want to vote for Blake Masters. They didn't want to vote for Doug Mastriano. They didn't want to vote for Dr. Oz or Kerry Lake. And Trump is in that vein. And so we saw in those states in particular, a lot of elections for people, you know, governor of Wisconsin, governor of Arizona, governor of Michigan, we saw the swing voters really reject the Trumpier candidates. And so that sort of bodes well for Biden. But even though we were in a bit of a tight economy, gas prices were high. We were still fighting sort of supply chains. You now you're kind of one recession and one Biden fall or surgery away, and Kamala Harris being you know the president for a while for the race to get really close. You now I saw Andy McCarthy over at National Review had a had a piece saying that Trump can't win, but of course Trump can win. He absolutely can. And the states that people are talking about, you know, sort of the the six or seven states that are always in contention, they were extremely close in 2020. Just 10,000 votes here or 20,000 votes there. And I think because we've been talking about Trump for so long, you get, I don't know, worn down and inert to this being our reality. But the idea of a second Trump term, the level of danger that that presents, not just the idea that for America, it means that somebody tried to overturn an election and we reelected them in a free and fair way. Do you know what that would say about us? And then not only is Donald Trump basing his campaign on retribution, but imagine the world order. Imagine him pulling us out of NATO. Like It's just such a scary proposition that I just don't think anybody should be taking anything for granted. And I do not like the narrative right now that Trump is on glide path and it's all over although I I stipulate that that is how it is shaping up. But I do think it's early. And I think we should still be trying to do everything we can to beat him. I think the big part of the problem is, uh, and I could go on about this forever, but is the unwillingness of these Republican candidates to take him on directly and also their sort of lack of political talent, their inability to navigate this moment. They don't understand how to take on Trump directly. But we're already in a very dangerous place and and we're going to need these Republican candidates to start putting in some real effort to defeat Trump because if he gets to the nomination, the chances of him winning, they're slightly less than 50-50, but they're close enough
1: that we should all be really scared. Damon Linker, Trump has already gotten the endorsement of 11 Republican senators, 52 House members, and two governors. On the other hand, uh, we saw... One Republican who is taking his potshots at Trump and doing so gleefully, and that's Chris Christie. Now, Chris Christie is never going to be president. But the thing is, isn't it amazing that in this wide country, there's just one guy in the Republican Party who is willing to even poke fun at Trump or call him a coward, which is what Christie did this week when Trump said that he might not debate. In the primaries.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about Christie is he is several years out from having had to face a voter. You know, his dream comes true and his Trump bashing like turns him into the great savior who can throw his hat in the ring and actually beat him. That I don't think is going to happen or come even close to happening, but that is his motive at this point. And that's the reason why he's able to, why he has the luxury of doing that. He doesn't have to face Republican voters. And the problem is the fact that you can't get very far in the Republican Party anymore if you take a position that is strongly anti-Trump. And I don't think it's not just that a lot of Republican voters like Trump. It's also that there's a weird difficulty in figuring out if you're going to go after Trump in the name of what. What are you bashing him for? Are you going to do, say, what, like, Nikki Haley tries to do, which is to sort of, kind of defend a pre-Trump vision of the Republican Party? No, but she doesn't. That's
1: She just says he's too old. That's all she ever said.
4: True. She doesn't go directly after Trump, but let's imagine she does. Like, Say she comes out and starts saying Christie-like things about Trump. Again, in the name of what? I don't think there's much of a constituency to like say, okay, well, we won't have Trump, but we want a return to, say, 2013 or the Romney campaign era. I don't think there's that. And then you have what, Mike Pence who like, you know, wants to sort of half be critical of Trump sometimes, but- also a kind of different vision of a kind of softer religious right version of the Republican Party circa around 2012. Remember, Pence was governor of Indiana, and he ended up being hated by the religious right because he wasn't sufficiently tough when uh, they had their Religious Freedom Restoration Act controversy there back in 2015. And so his political career was probably going into sunset before he got Tap to be vice president, to everyone's surprise. You have then the possibility that Ron DeSantis, maybe he'll come out swinging. But again, in the name of what? Well, it appears his move will be to effectively try to outflank Trump on the right. He'll say, uh, you know, I signed the six-week abortion ban. I go after those woke corporations like Disney. And then, Trump will just respond and be like, you're crazy in going after Disney, and you're being far too radical on abortion. That's way outside the mainstream. How about the 15-week ban that you signed eight months ago? That was a lot more reasonable. So again, the problem is that Trump is actually pretty good at positioning, (laughs) even if he's a total flaming mess in every other respect and a moral cretin and... Wouldn't care about and actually probably would actively like to turn himself into a tyrant if he could get away with it. But when it comes to positioning in the political constellation of the Republican Party as it now exists, he sort of like sits in this magic place where he sort of stakes out certain positions that sort of resonate with voters and then puts everybody else on the defensive. And I don't see anyone. Able to do it yet again. DeSantis is close. I mean, he's the closest of all of them. He's the one who has a shot. And I, like Sarah, don't want to, you know, rule it out. It's still very, very early. We don't know what's going to happen. If Biden could end up having a slip and a fall that renders him incapacitated, Trump could too. He's also in his mid to late 70s. And, uh, He's going to be 77 in two months. Yeah, exactly. And then there could be other things, you know, a big indictment that actually hurts him for a change rather than gives him a boost. I mean, who knows? But we are in a position already where, like, we've seen the dynamics starting to play out. Vivek Ramaswamy, who's like a no-name guy who's running for president as a kind of trump light kind of guy, he's at 5%. He's ahead of Nikki Haley. Like, this is a joke that there is nobody except for DeSantis anywhere near within strike distance. He's to this Ramaswamy is tied with the former vice president of the United States right now. So I don't know what to say other than throw up my arms and say, I can't believe we're going to do this again,
1: Bill speaking of Mike Pence, who, you know, paren, Mike Pence, whose view on Donald Trump is, yes, he tried to get a mob to lynch me, but no hard feelings, testified last week before a grand jury regarding what happened on January 6th and many other things, presumably, with the uh, independent counsel, Jack Smith. So, If this were a movie, you would see the public maneuverings of Trump and Biden, and they're sort of slipping into campaign mode. And then you'd have other scenes of testimony going on behind the scenes of the march of these possible indictments. And it is completely unclear where that's going to go, but it's looking more and more like Smith is going to come down with something. And so, in addition to all of the other Facts about our situation, namely that you have a twice impeached insurrection supporting lunatic who is the leading figure for the nomination on the Republican side, perhaps the once indicted, but he may soon be multiple indicted figure.
5: As Lyndon Johnson was fond of saying, and therefore, uh, (laughs) I've given up trying to figure out what is going to hurt Donald Trump. Because I can remember watching the initial Republican debates in the summer and fall of 2015 with seasoned political reporters by my side. Every 10 minutes or so, we would look at each other and say to each other, he said, what? And then he can't possibly survive that. (laughs) That's the end of his campaign. Wrong, wrong, wrong. I've been wrong about that now for eight years. And I'm beginning to think, and maybe I'm just surrendering my analytical powers to the demons of the underworld here. But if anybody had told me that Trump would be indicted by a prosecutor in New York on, you know, not the most serious of issues, but not trivial either. And that in the month after that, his ratings among Republicans would go up 10 points and Ron DeSantis's would go down 10 points. I wouldn't have believed it. That's what happened. And so if you ask me, is he going to take a hit if Jack Smith indicts him? I no longer believe that he will. I appeal to Sarah for some clarification on this point, but he's the Nietzschean candidate. Whatever doesn't kill him makes him stronger. And I would say in this connection that Chris Christie's mission in life is not to become the nominee of the Republican Party for the presidency of the United States now or ever. It is to strap on a suicide vest and take this guy out, if possible, before Sarah's parade of horribles comes to pass. But if I can comment on a question that was raised just a few minutes ago, namely, why isn't someone taking him on substantively? Well, let me create the ideal type of a Republican candidate who takes him on substantively. And the possible elements would include Paul Ryan's seriousness about the budget deficit and the national debt and putting everything on the table, including Social Security and Medicare to try to deal with it. It would include opposition to Trump on trade. It would include opposition to Trump on immigration. It would include skepticism about high levels of government spending and the new populist favorite in both political parties, industrial policy. And it would include a full-throated defense of the alliance systems in Europe and in East Asia that the United States has patiently built over decades and is now struggling to maintain. Query to my former Republican friends on this panel, would such a candidate have a chance in today's
1: Republican Party. Okay, Linda, there's a toss to you, except I'm going to just amend that a little bit because the way Bill set it up, it was a little bit tendentious because he listed a number of things that would be unpopular, and frankly, some of those, including reforming Social Security and Medicare, that would be non-starters in the Democratic Party too. So let's acknowledge that. But I would say there are many other things that a candidate could say that would be popular with Republicans and even some independents, like being hostile to, you know, putting your pronouns in your email or changing the name of the homeless to the unhoused or, you know, various other things. <laughs> or pregnant women to yeah, right. a pregnant persons. Right. Yes. Go ahead. Well, first of all, I wanted
3: to give a little shout out to a Republican who is directly taking on Donald Trump and who wants to run for president. The former governor of Arkansas, I've mentioned him before, Asa Hutchinson had a piece on Tuesday on CNN on their online site, and I'll just read you one sentence from it. The actions taken by former President Donald Trump demonstrate that he has chosen not to govern by honoring our shared conservative values. Instead, he has undermined the fabric of our democracy by questioning the outcome of the 2020 election and using violent rhetoric to stir protesters on January 6, 2021. It goes on from there. But the point is, There are some that are speaking out. Now, will Asa Hutchinson suddenly capture the hearts and minds of the Republican Party? I don't know. I can't tell you. But I scoffed once before at a former governor of Arkansas, who I never thought could be president and gave the world's most boring speech at a Democratic midterm convention. And lo and behold, he became president, served two terms. So I'm not going to count somebody like Asa Hutchinson out. But I also think that when we're talking about whether or not the indictments, certainly the Alvin Bragg indictment, whether that helped or hurt him among the base of the party, that's one thing. But Jack Smith is very serious and the kind of charges that I think are likely to come from the special counsel will be of a different order of magnitude Than what Alvin Bragg was putting together in terms of taking what was generally a misdemeanor crime and elevating it to a felony, having to do with falsifying business records, that is not the kind of thing that is going to grip people. But what we are talking about in terms both of Mar-a-Lago and of the former president's role in fomenting January 6th and in attempting to stop the transfer of power in a peaceful way, the 200-year history of that in the United States, it's an entirely different matter. And we got the conviction of uh, at least four of the five Proud Boys who were up for seditious conspiracy. And I found one of the most interesting things about that matter was that Enrique Tario was that he was not actually present on the Capitol grounds, and yet he was also convicted. He, of course, is the leader of the Proud Boys. He was in a hotel room, I think, in Baltimore, at the time of the January 6th insurrection. But he was clearly the leader. He clearly inspired, helped inspire the violence of the Proud Boy members. And he was part of the conspiracy. Well, that's sort of, you know, not all that different from Donald Trump and his role in what happened on January 6th. So the idea that Donald Trump is going to remain unscathed About what happened on January 6th. I don't think that, you know, I know Bill is is skeptical of whether or not this is going to change anything the Republicans here believe. Most people don't follow these issues the way those of us who have to be pundits and talk on podcasts and write articles about it. When it is laid out, When the American people hear the bill of particulars that will be able to be put together by Jack Smith, I think you're going to have something different. And I think you are going to have people looking at things like Donald Trump's using his choir boys, who are all people who are serving sentences for that insurrection, having them sing the national anthem while Trump himself says the Pledge of Allegiance. There was a piece in the Post today about that and who these people are. Some of them are convicted of having helped beat Brian Sicknick, who, of course, died a day after the insurrection. So I just think that we're not giving enough credit to people. And I, for one, think it is not altogether impossible that Trump will be brought down by
1: the terrible things that he's done. Okay, Sarah Longwell, at the risk of being slightly more optimistic than usual, I'm going to spin out a possible scenario for you, and I want to get your reaction. Because I recall that back during the hearings that were held by the January 6th committee, you were conducting your focus groups, and you noticed an effect that even among Trump supporters, there was a sense of, well, he has too much baggage and so on. It was penetrating, even if they said they weren't watching. If there is an indictment by Jack Smith, and as Linda says, all of these things are re-upped, it's in their faces again. And this happens, mm, say, around early 2024, mid-20, even mid-2024, might that not affect people.
2: Oh, I wish that I thought that was the case, but you're so right to remember this. The January 6th committee hearings, when everything was laid out, as Linda just said, it did have an impact, but there was another thing going on while that was happening, which is while voters were being reminded of all the baggage that Trump had, Ron DeSantis was having his sort of media boomlet. And so the voters at that time were being given a sense of, you know, maybe I do need to move on. And look, there's somebody I can move on to, this guy who is Trump without the baggage. And I think that the problem is, is that you got to have that place for them to go. I think this first indictment is working to make Trump stronger, because the psychology of the voters is this. They wouldn't be trying so hard to get Donald Trump if they weren't so afraid of him. And that makes them want to vote for him again. That makes them think. He's the one. But it also allows him to suck up all the media oxygen, all the attention. It makes it impossible for any of these other candidates to make an affirmative case for themselves. And even worse, because they all come to his aid in those moments, they become these sort of supporting cast members in the central drama of Donald Trump. And so this idea that the indictments are going to take him down, I just really believe that We should put aside hope that exogenous events are going to be the things that take out Donald Trump, unless it's like a health event or something. But the idea that the indictments are going to do it, I have lost most faith in that because I've just seen too many times the way that the voters kind of react to it. And just to answer Bill's question, though, would that candidate that he laid out, could that person beat Donald Trump? The answer is absolutely not. There is no going back to the before times of before Donald Trump. Everything's changed. The party has changed. And and the voters have really changed in terms of what they want. They don't absolutely need to have Trump, but they do need to have somebody like him who they think is a fighter. And the problem for DeSantis right now is I think that the Trumps sort of jump in standing has a lot to do with the deflation of DeSantis, which is that voters' relationship with him has been pretty shallow, right? They were excited by him. They thought he'd be a good person to move on to, but they're seeing more of him and he's being defined by Trump, right? He's right now, Trump is all over him saying he's a regular politician and he's kind of a weirdo. Well, that's landing with voters because they don't have a deep relationship with him the way they do with Donald Trump. They've been defending Trump for years At the Thanksgiving table, they voted for him two or three times already. That relationship runs super deep. The idea that they would walk over something new, to me, just seems hard to believe, whereas it seems really easy that for a guy like DeSantis that they're not that attached to, that they start to say, I don't know, I think he's kind of weird. I'm just going to go with Trump again.
1: Thank you for that. I would like to just acknowledge here and give credit to our own Damon Linker who saw around corners on this matter a long time ago and argued that indicting Trump was going to strengthen him, not weaken him, and took a lot of grief because of it. But he persuaded me, and we both actually wound up taking a lot of grief for it. But I think as events have played out, it certainly has proved correct. So... Kudos to you. Damon, do you want to add anything?
4: Well, thank you for that. Uh, not beyond saying if Jack Smith comes down with something, not on the classified documents, I don't think that's going to land either. But on January 6th, depending on what it is, that's the one thing where I have a question mark. Like, will that help? Because you know, in polling, you know, the events of that day are still a little raw even among a few Republicans. So that's the last question mark I'll have. But in general, I like the vindication, even if I hate the result. (laughs) Right, right, right.
1: Okay, well, we'll see. I too am very eager to see what Jack Smith comes up with because you never know. It might be something big enough. All right. With that, we were going to get into the immigration issue and Biden's new moves on this. I think we're going to have to push that off because we're running long, but we will go straight now to our highlight or low light of the week. And we'll start with Bill Galston.
5: This is an easy one. It's the uncontested low light of the week. And it is the Tucker Carlson email to a producer, which was sent on January 7th of 2021. And I believe that a line from this email or text is going to show up on his tombstone if there's any justice in the world, which I guess is an argument for why it won't show up on his tombstone, but that's a different, more theological question. And it starts as follows. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching video of people fighting on the street in Washington. A group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid and started pounding the living shit out of him. It was three against one, at least. Jumping a guy like that is dishonorable, obviously. It is not how white men fight. That is the line that I think is going to go on his tombstone, because... It reveals him as being the stone cold racist that I think most of the people who weren't in the tank for him already knew that he was. But this just makes it undeniable. And the fact that Fox producers and the senior management turned their eyes on the actual content of what this guy was saying for all these years And according to some observers, are releasing these emails now in an effort to deflect attention from their own role in enabling and encouraging this guy and all the other people like him for so many years. I'm not sure where that sentence started, but it's going to end with two thumbs down for Rupert Murdoch and everybody who works for him in a position of authority. And I hope that this is the beginning of the end, not only for him and for the kind of journalism he has represented throughout his career. Well,
1: let's pray for that. All right, Sarah Longwell.
2: Well, I was going to talk about the guilty verdict for the Proud Boys, but uh, since we already brought that up, I'm just going to say something that I've been, I was mad about as a lowlight earlier this week, which is when Governor Greg Abbott came out after there was this horrible... Execution of a family who had asked their neighbor, who was shooting his guns in the yard next door, to please stop because their baby was trying to sleep, and that man came over and murdered them all, execution style. And Governor Greg Abbott, in announcing a fifty thousand dollar reward for the criminal who killed them, he said, "I'm going to offer fifty k reward for info on the criminal who killed five illegal immigrants on Friday." Now, here's the thing: first of all, it turns out one of them was a legal U.S. resident, but. This bothers me so much, the effort to dehumanize people who had just been murdered. Even if it's true, there are a lot of other opportunities to unpack the immigration status of people. You don't have to do it as the headline for how you talk about people who have just been murdered. And just to tag on quickly to what Bill just said about Tucker Carlson and Fox News, but but related on the question of calling people illegal immigrants Fox is acting like they might be surprised that racism was happening at Fox News and with Tucker, but Jesse Waters, another Fox News host, tells a story about he was walking to work and he sees illegal immigrants digging through a trash can. And one of the co-hosts said, how do you know that they were illegal? And he says, I can always tell. And I just think that it is, it is very important that we have a legal immigration This is not my world, this is Linda's, but we have a legal immigration policy and we don't want people to come illegally. We want to create a pathway for people to come legally. But the way that people dehumanize people by calling them illegal immigrants in these
1: moments, I think is a real low light for us. Sarah, can I applaud that completely and just add, I don't know, a little bit of special pleading here for all of us never Trumpers who for so many years have been told, oh, you're just offended because he's uncouth or because you're an elitist or no, there's nothing to do with that. It is about the death of decency. It is about the viciousness that has been introduced into American politics by him and most of, most of his party now. And Abbott is a great example and it is beyond disgusting and it has nothing to do with being uncouth. It's being vicious and cruel. Anyway, all right, I've done my rant. (laughs) So Damon Linker. I feel a little bad because like, you know,
4: we usually mix it up here on the podcast. Some have low light, some have highlights. People leave with maybe something to watch or listen to or read that might be good, but I'm going to go dark along with everybody else so far. I'm going to highlight a real low light, which is the CPAC conference in Hungary. CPAC, of course, the conservative political action conference that takes place seems like several times a year now. It's going to be like a month event soon, I think. Matt Schlapp, who runs it, obviously needs to raise a lot of money. But whatever the case, this is being held in Hungary right now. And if listeners go to the website for this and click on speakers, you will get quite an interesting parade of people. You have leading members of far-right parties from France, Italy, Austria, Brazil, including the son of the former Brazilian president, uh, Eduardo Bolsonaro, is there. But then there are, of course, the Americans. There's Mark Meadows, the Trump chief of staff. You have Matt Whitaker, who was the acting attorney general under Trump between the Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr eras at the Justice Department. You have Michael Anton, of course. How could you have a conference like this without him? Uh, Claremont Institute guy uh, who wrote the Flight 93 election and also served uh, in the Trump administration, and I guarantee you, would be a very big person in a second Trump administration. You also have former Senator Rick Santorum is there, as well as uh, Representative Paul Gosar of Arizona, and of course Carrie Lake, who's looking for anything to do that you know will fill her days these days as she tries to find another election to lose. There's a kind of strange humor to the way a lot of these people describe themselves. There's a guy from South. Africa, who's clearly like an apologist for apartheid, who defines himself as a committed defender of the Afrikaner-Boer community. (laughs) It's just an incredible cast of Cretans here, and the fact that there are... Any prominent public figures from the United States is just a real disgusting shame. (laughs) But it is true. And uh, did I mention uh, that the president of the Heritage Foundation is also there? Yes. And his bio says, President of Heritage Foundation who sees Hungary as an example. Kevin Roberts, who incidentally was interviewed in the New York Post recently, describing how one of his top priorities is to see the Obergefell decision overturned so that gay marriages within red states can be broken up. And uh, I guess I will have to throw in, and Linda, I don't think is gone yet, so she can hit back at me if she wants, but this is why Asa Hutchinson has no chance at all. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Hey,
1: Linda.
3: To too, touche, <laughs> touche. but you know I hate to continue this uh, litany of deplorable things, but I'm going to because I have a low light as well and interestingly, it's a low light that really stems from what used to be one of the highlights of my reading life. There was a time when every month. The publication that I look most forward to reading was a publication called First Things. It had been started by Father Richard John Newhouse. It was a publication that dealt with religion and ideas, and I found it a wonderful publication. Well, uh, needless to say, uh, as many publications that I used to look forward to reading have done in recent years, First Things is not what it was. And in the May 2023 edition, uh, there is an article by one Nathan Pinkowski, who is of the Edmund Burke Society, and it is entitled Spiritual Death of the West. What this article is, is a pay-in to a novel that was first published in the 1970s in France by a writer named Jean Raspail. It was put out in English in 1975. It's called The Camp of the Saints. And I have my own history with this book because the very second thing I ever published in my life was a review of The Camp of the Saints. So I go back with this novel a long way. This is one of the most despicable racist screeds, certainly that I have ever read, but I think You know, it's right up there with some of the books like the Turner Diaries, Mein Kampf, other kinds of really vicious books. And this novel is all about a flotilla of boats landing, I believe, in the Riviera in France. The flotilla started on the Indian subcontinent it is uh, jam-packed with subhuman species. The main uh, villain is someone who's known as the turd eater because that, in fact, defines who he is. And it is all about this flotilla of dark brown skin monsters coming to rout first France, but then all of Europe. For Mr. Penkowski to use this novel to celebrate it, to claim that it's really not a vicious anti-immigrant tract, it's not a racist tract, is just disingenuous. And for this to have been printed, and for Mr. Pinkowski to have been invited recently to appear at a forum uh, sponsored by the American Enterprise Institute really gives me pause. And it really does say something about what has happened to our intellectual landscape over the last 10 or 20 years.
1: Thank you. All right. Well, I guess mine is a highlight, even if it is wrapped around a low light. So what I mean is I want to praise a column by Brett Stevens, friend of this podcast, his column was called The Curious Conservative Case Against Defending Ukraine. And as is his wont, Brett has demolished a series of specious contradictory arguments and called out the appeal of authoritarianism. But here's just one paragraph to give you a flavor of it. He says, some of the more dovish conservative voices on Ukraine who fear that the war could set off a nuclear conflagration with Moscow, are uber-hawks when it comes to China. They argue that the resources we are pouring into Kiev should be held in reserve for a looming battle with Beijing over Taiwan. They are also the same people who fault Biden's shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan for making America seem weak, without appearing to be the least bit concerned about the signal that an American abandonment of Ukraine might also send. And there's a lot more where that came from. And so I highly recommend the column, even if the underlying topic is pretty grim, namely the cowardice and the intellectual uh, weakness of many on the what is now the dovish right. I wrote a book a number of years ago called Useful Idiots, which was about people who, on the left, who refused to confront the reality of the threat from the Soviet Union and the reality of the inhumanity of communism. And a number of people have said, I could easily write the book again, except now everybody who is so blinkered would be on the right. So there we are. All right. With that, I would like to thank our special guest, Sarah Longwell. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, thanks to our regular panel. Aaron Keene has done audio for us this week, along with Jonathan Siri. And I want to also thank our producer, Katie Cooper, And with that, we will return next week as every week.
0: Selling a little, or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom.
3: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in
1: a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner kia
0: movement that inspires
1: call 800 333 kia for details always drive safely limited inventory available warranties include 10-year 100,000 mile powertrain and five-year 60,000 mile basic warranties are limited see retailer for details
6: this is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design the kind of experience you can only find in a lexus suv a feeling this empowering is invite only fortunately you're invited